If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, the fifth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. We're studying this gospel account together as a church, and we're at the great section, the Sermon on the Mount section in chapter 5. We'll read it in just a moment. I want to begin this morning by um, getting you to think about the, the word Christian uh, and maybe thinking of it in different terms. Uh, it's kind of a meaningless word, the word Christian. Uh, we know it's kind of lost its meaning because we have to add modifiers to it. So people say, well, I'm not just a Christian. I'm a, an evangelical Christian. We say Bible-believing Christian, Reformed Christian, um, conservative Christian, and all of these things we're trying to add to, to, to explain because it's kind of lost its, its saltiness, if you will. Uh, you're a Christian if you're not some other religion. Uh, you're a Christian if you were born in America, uh, kind of thinking. It's, it's meaningless. But I want you to think in terms of Christian belonging to Christ. Okay, so Jesus, his, in chapter 1, verse 1, it's Jesus Christ, where we get our word Christian. And I realize this is kind of obvious, but I want to go a little bit beyond obvious. So if we are Christians, not in the cultural sense, but in the biblical sense, we belong to Christ. He is our Savior. We're, we're secure in Him. But now I, I want to go a little bit deeper and think in terms of, well, Christ means Messiah. Messiah means King. We belong to the King. And then we think of Christian belonging to Christ, belonging to the King, and we think of it in terms of Matthew's Gospel account, where we've been hearing all about the Kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we keep, we've been seeing this throughout as we work our way through the first four chapters. And we're going to keep seeing it. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. I want you to maybe feel the profound nature of being a Christian. If you're a Christian, you belong to Christ, which means you belong to the King which means you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So when your life is bad in the here and now, and you have all kinds of struggles and all kinds of challenges, if we're catching his drift, if you will, in Matthew's gospel account, it's meant to encourage us and help us. You want to belong to the king because that means you're a citizen of the kingdom in the here and now, even though ultimately that kingdom is actually yet to come. I tried to come up with a, a creative word for it, but it just sounded bad. Uh, so, so for Christians, we're Messiahans. Well, a little bit of traction. We, we belong to the king. Uh, Kingdomians? That just sounds like we're dumb. <laughs> okay. But we don't want to do that. But if I can remind you now and then, if you're truly a Christian, you're a citizen of the perfect, healthy, just, righteous, provided for, taken care of, needs met, no tears, coming kingdom because you belong to the king. It's meant to encourage us, okay? And today we're going to learn in the Beatitudes, the blessings 
The Beatitudes are meant to encourage us because the kingdom is ours if we're belonging to the king. It's a big deal to be a Christian by God's grace. In other words, let's go ahead and read through the text. It's going to be uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll take a deeper dive. Seeing the crowds, he went. he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Last time I counted, there are nine of these pronouncements of blessings or the Latinized Beatitudes. I read a book that said there are eight, but I kept counting and counting and I think there are nine. So anyway, maybe I'm missing something, but I'm going to say there are nine. Pretty sure there are nine of these pronouncements of blessings. Again, we call them the Beatitudes, but it's, a, it's an official pronouncement of blessing, okay, of encouragement, of favor or peace from God. The setting is Galilee region, close to the city of Capernaum, by the lake, no doubt. And there in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is, is before the crowds. He sees the crowds. He goes up on the mountain, probably in a Moses kind of style, because he's going to say some very similar things to Moses, although different in a little while in this sermon. And so probably not an accident that he's taking that kind of stature as an ultimate Moses, an ultimate mediator, because Moses was a kind of mediator. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So notice, we're learning who's there. There are crowds because they've been following him at the end of chapter 4. So there are crowds around, probably able to hear. In fact, we know at the end of chapter 7, they could hear. But he's addressing the disciples. It's, it's the close-knit group. They came to him, he opened his mouth and taught them. And now the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to reread it and I want to reread it because it's probably the most important statement in the whole section. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, and I'm going to say it this way, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not reading too much into it when I say is for emphasis. Because then he's going to say, shall, 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 shall. I think there are six future-looking blessings. Shall, it will, in the future, when you're a part of the kingdom and it's arrived and it's actualized and Christ's return, shall, forward-looking. But he brackets the beginning and the end with is statements. Okay? So here... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is. That's a present reality, not future shall. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
present possession. And then in chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 10, similarly, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs, not shall, theirs is present reality. He's bracketing these statements in the middle with these two important statements for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we'll invest most of our time here. So settle in. It's going to get good. I hope it's good. It's not going to get any better than hearing the actual text, I promise. His sermon is more important than my sermon. There's is the kingdom of heaven. I want to ask you, let's just pretend for a moment that we don't know who's saying this and we don't know much. I want to ask you, what kind of person says that? Who in their right mind makes an official pronouncement, a declaration, and says, the poor in spirit are blessed, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who, who would ever say such a thing? Well, for it to be legitimate, the kind of person who would say such a thing is the person who has authority. A whole lot of authority to, to be able to say that and know that and mean that. It's, it's, meant, it's meant to be profound. We always want to read the Beatitudes and have it be about us. It's going to be about us, and it's really good. But before it's about us, it's, be, it's about Him. He's making these astounding declarations. There's is the kingdom of heaven. It's no wonder that at the end of chapter 7, the crowds who are listening in, they're eavesdropping, they're astounded because He doesn't teach like their teachers. He teaches as one who has, anybody know? Authority. Astounding, striking authority. That's the kind of person that says what he says here. It, it's meant to, to rivet our attention and say, wow, this is what the king would say. Because a king is in charge of his kingdom. Let me tell you who's going to be in my kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is meant to be encouraging because some of the things he's going to say in the sermon, some of the shall things, are good things and it's how he wants us to live our lives if we're disciples. Because remember, they're the inner circle. But the, in a broken world, though we might be kingdom citizens, there's going to be a rub. And so let's start with encouragement and let's end with encouragement. If you're poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom. It, it belongs to you because you belong to Christ. It, it's really good stuff. Really good. Really, really good for encouragement. Theologians call this a royal grant. This is formal speech. This is decretive speech. This is covenantally binding kind of speech. And Jesus, according to Luke chapter 22, was assigned a kingdom by his father. The word assigned doesn't quite capture the reality. It's decretive language. Again, it's, it's formal, binding, legal, covenantal language. He was assigned a kingdom by his father. And then he assigns it to his followers. It says this in Luke 22, verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign, I confer 
decretive, covenantal, legal binding. And I assign to you my, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Authority. Unique relationship with the Father conferred to Him and now Jesus the King to those who He can say, theirs is the kingdom. It's so, so good. I just have to have a little charismatic moment with myself. It's meant for us to say, wow. Wow. He's really something. Who's it for, according to Jesus? And it's no accident that in verse 3 he starts this way based upon everything we've learned in the first four chapters. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor people lack, right? Poor people are needy. And he uses the metaphor for spiritually poor people. People who don't have what they need, right? Uh, it would be related to repentance. He's called them to repent. Acknowledge that you're wrong. Acknowledge that you're wrong about yourself. You're wrong about God. You're wrong about Christ. You need help. You need saving. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We would say Christians. Because they're trusting in Christ. Because they know they're spiritual needy. They're not independent. They're not um, self-made. They're not, they don't have it all together spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom? If we want to define it very simply. We can say the kingdom is the righteous reign of Messiah. Messiah means king. The kingdom is the righteous reign of Messiah the Christ. That's what the kingdom is. And from there it gets complicated. So let's talk a little bit about this. He says it's the kingdom of heaven. That's important because it comes from God. It's not like any of the kingdoms of this earth. I think I've been to two kingdoms in my life and I wasn't impressed with either kingdom. Um, they weren't perfect. The people weren't all pleasant and happy and having all their needs met. Uh, kingdoms of this world are broken. Um, and here we have the kingdom of heaven. Powerful, supernatural. We don't have a tyrant. We don't have an imperfect one. We don't have a king who keeps sinning. We don't have a king who keeps dying. It's the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to us. The perfect kingdom. The ultimate kingdom. Jesus said twice in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Same idea. It's from heaven. It's perfect. It's a, I'm a king you can trust. We also learned that it's long before promised in Isaiah chapter 9, because that came earlier, quoting Isaiah 9. It was promised a long time ago. Uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 33 would have us to know that this kingdom is never ending. Luke one thirty-three: of his kingdom there will be no end. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You thought that came from Handel. It comes from Revelation. And he shall reign forever. Right? Keep my day job. 
It's true. It's true because not because of the hallelujah chorus. It's true because that's what the Bible teaches about His kingdom. It'll last forever because He lasts forever and He gives us eternal life with Him forever. Christians belong to an eternal kingdom. It's meant to give us perspective in the here and now and motivate us to live for His glory and honor even in the tough stuff. It'll last forever. We also should note that it's future. It's future in what? Now we're going to get technical and theological, but... You need to. It's, it's future in its consummation. So the Bible talks about the future, the return of Christ, the, the, the consummation of His kingdom. That's future. It's not now. Matthew 26, at the end of this gospel account, Matthew 26, 27 to 29, uh, when He um, breaks bread and they drink wine and they do what we're supposed to do today, but the first time they ever did it, on the night when He was betrayed, it says in verse 29, I tell you, this is Jesus, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Future, awaiting, longing for, Even the six Beatitudes that come after this remind us because it's shall, 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 shall. Present reality, we belong. The king is there, but we're waiting for the consummation. We're waiting for that day. I'm not contradicting myself, but I'll also say this kingdom is present in its inauguration. There are benefits now. There are citizens now. Christ was successful in the work that he had to do. And so he can speak of the kingdom of God being at hand. We can be considered citizens now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. It's equated with new creation. I've mentioned that at least two times. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is really odd. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you think about it. If anyone is in Christ, in Messiah the King, united by faith, think of it in those terms. If anyone is in Christ, okay, it's not... Jesus Christ, his last name, right? It's not without meaning. If anyone is in Christ, united to the king by faith, the Messiah by faith, he is a new creation. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Is that true? Of course it's true. But there's a sense in which it's not true because it's not actualized, right? If anyone is in Christ, this is good news. It's wonderful. You're a new creation. I don't feel like a new creation. When I look in the mirror, I don't look like a new creation. In fact, I look like an ever-growing older creation, a dying creation. It's not helpful. It's not good. But the reality is because I'm tied to, I'm united to the king. I'm a member of his kingdom. And so the not yet fully actualized consummated reality is something that is part of my life. I belong. Sometimes theologians say already not yet. If that's helpful, use it. If it's not, forget it. But the reality is the Bible teaches future coming consummated kingdom. This is not it. Praise God. But it definitely teaches that that reality has invaded, if you will, in a good sense our lives in the here and now because of the finished work of Christ. We're citizens. We belong. So much so, the Bible says you're a new creation. That's just not dumb talk. That's because you are a citizen of the ultimate coming kingdom where 
There's no crying, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no injustice, there are no tyrants, there's no lying, there's no pain in your life. It's good stuff. It's great stuff. It's yours in Christ. Puts the hard stuff in perspective. We doing okay? I don't think we're going to get done today. But... Now for the other six. And then another one. Here are the other pronouncements that come. These are the shall ones. And this is telling us how to live our lives in the present reality. If we're a disciple of Jesus, how would he want us to act in a broken, messed up world and you're a kingdom citizen? Here, 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 here it is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Maybe mourning over your own sin, like Psalm 119, verse 136. Your own spiritual inadequacy. Or maybe it's outside of you. Effects of sin, like pain, suffering, death, conflict, turmoil. Things that cause you sadness. Things that cause you to mourn. But notice you care enough to be broken and mourn over these things. It makes sense. You're in touch with the realities of a broken world. You're not indifferent. You're not ignoring them. And what does he say? It's good news that he says they shall be comforted. We can be thankful that in the here and now we have the Holy Spirit who is our comforter, but there's something greater. Shall be comforted. There's going to be ultimate comfort. Again, book of Revelation says no more tears. So we're waiting for that. Ultimate kingdom actualized consummated reality but it's not now ready to move on to the next one we're going fast got some ground to cover got some ground to cover for the sake of time I'm not going to Isaiah 53 um, you need to go to Pastor Mike Holloway's class to learn all of that but the reason we can be comforted is because of Christ bearing our griefs it's tied to reality, the reality of Christ, Isaiah 53, 3 to 6. Let's go on to the next blessing, the next beatitude, the next pronouncement of goodness from God to you if you're a disciple, if you're poor in spirit. It says in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So inherit the earth is, is probably a way of saying it's all going to be yours. You're going to have everything, right? You're, you're united to the king as a Christian. And so you're going to own everything because it's his kingdom and you're one of his children. You belong to him. You'll inherit the earth. Sometimes I hear kids say, wouldn't it be great if you owned everything? Wouldn't it be great if, if you owned everything and no one else was on planet earth so you could drive a Ferrari as fast as you wanted to for a few days? That's how my kids talk. You, you inherited the earth. It's all yours, right? We, we, we would love to be wealthy. We would love to be free. We'd love to have everything, nothing broken, just enjoying life. It'd be great. They shall have that. Maybe Ferraris, I don't know. I digress. You'll inherit the earth. You'll be happy. But that is for the person who is meek in the here and now. Okay? Same word translated gentle, and describing Jesus in Matthew 11. It doesn't mean spineless. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean pansy. It doesn't mean whatever kind of other weak word you want to use. The meek, the gentle. 
Christians, Messiahins, King, not going to say the word, people who belong to Christ, who are citizens of the kingdom, are supposed to seek to be meek, to be gentle, to be under control. Stayed. So if you belong to that coming kingdom, this is how Christ wants you to live your life. Meek, gentle, Christ-like. Not natural for a non-glorified person. Let's move on to the next one. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is a legal word. It's adherence to God's law, God's ways, and what God wants. So we hunger and thirst just like we, we thirst for water. We hunger for food like basic necessities. We have an appetite for, for something and it's righteousness, God's ways, God's will. We want to do that. It's our desire. It's what moves us. And he says, for they shall be satisfied. So I can tell you, you, you want to be that kind of person. I probably should remind you now and then, he's not saying at this point in time in the sermon, he will later, he's not saying at this point in time that if you do these things, you, you earn heaven. There's a reason why he started with poor in spirit. Okay? He, he, he's addressing the disciples. Okay? He, he, he's saying, if the kingdom belongs to you, in the here and now, here's how I want you to live. I want you to hunger for the things of God and the will of God to be done. And you know what? One day you shall be satisfied. You won't be satisfied in the here and now, but you shall be. Then he says in verse 7, the next blessing, the next beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are people who are Christ-like who don't give people what they deserve. This is a good one. This is a hard one. If you belong to the coming kingdom, you're going to be shown mercy. Because you don't deserve to be there, and I don't deserve to be there. Nobody deserves to be there except Christ. You're going to experience mercy. Christians, how about this? Of all people should understand mercy. Justice means we get condemnation. Fair means we get condemnation. And we receive mercy. We receive eternal life. Got not condemnation, but justification. If you're a Christian, you've not gotten what you deserve. And so, of all people, Christians should be merciful. Easy to understand in principle. But how many times in relationships, whether it's in the church or outside of the church or in a family or in a marriage or in a friendship gone wrong or whatever, it's always, not always, but so many times it's, I'm acting badly or a certain way because of what they've done. I'm so glad that Jesus Christ didn't act that way. Christians should be good at mercy showing. Oh, you behaved badly? There might be consequences to bad behavior. But you know, the Lord has been 
very merciful to me, so I need to express mercy to you. God help us with that one, right? Next one in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, which is what we're all looking for, to be in a right relationship with God. And if it belongs to you, that will be true someday, but not now. But it's what we're looking for. It's what sustains us. But Christ wants us in the here and now for his disciples to be pure in heart. The heart, your heart is, the Bible uses it as, as the center of your being, the true you. So external behavior is important, but he actually wants good behavior, righteousness, if you will, but it actually comes from it's just your true desire. God, help me with my motives. Help me to do the right thing the right way. I'm so glad that that's not a verse all by itself. We're going to get there later in the Sermon on the Mount that those kind of statements are made. Peter, who's listening, will be glad that that's not an absolute requirement for heaven. He's going to be so glad that he's going to trust in Christ. Because Peter is going to behave very badly from the heart. But it's what Christ is asking for. If you belong to me by faith, I want you to be pure in heart. Remember, he's speaking to those who have already been called out as poor in spirit. Verse 9, let's keep moving. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We belong to him. We're like him. We imitate him. He is the one who makes peace for us through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 We belong to him and we show we belong to Him because we imitate Him. We imitate the King. We imitate the Messiah. We're peacemakers. I like it that it's not just peacekeepers. Peacekeeping is good. Peacemakers. I'm going to try to, to, to bring peace where there's conflict. Because that's the Christ-like thing to do. I belong to the King. I belong to the Messiah. I belong to the coming kingdom where there will be perfect peace because of the blood of Christ's cross. Let me encourage you today from the words of Christ. You want to be a peacemaker. You of all people can understand it because of the gospel. Let's be peacemakers. And then he says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the right thing, for theirs, here we go, bracketed, is the kingdom of heaven, belongs to them. And that is meant to encourage us, right? Christians believe the truth about Christ. They believe the gospel. They believe salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We believe that we should do right things according to what God says, not what we feel or someone else says. Uh, we believe in truth. We believe in error. We believe in objectivity. And he says, when you're persecuted for those things, just know, that the kingdom is yours. It belongs to you by virtue of your trusting in Christ. Kingdom citizen. So don't go looking for trouble. 
but it may be related to what you believe about God, what you believe about Christ, what you believe about salvation and eternal life, what you believe about morality, what you believe about ethics, what you believe about, and the list could go on and on and on. But to quote the Apostle Paul, you will be persecuted in one way, happens in different ways, in different places, at different times. Might be for you at school, might be for you in your friendships, might be for you in your marriage, might be for you in your, you name it. Might cost you your job. So, how, how do we cope? How do I do this? It's painful. It hurts. Maybe your very, very, very best relationship, your best job, whatever it is, I'm here trying to remind you that if you're a Christian, you belong to the King and the kingdom is yours. And it's the kingdom of heaven, not a kingdom of this world. It's perspective. And we easily lose perspective. Christ is encouraging us with right perspective. Then verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Seems counterintuitive. If you take the verse alone, you say, I don't feel very blessed. Perspective, kingdom, citizen, belonging now. I'm siding with the right side of history. I'm with him. Then it says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. And I wrote in my margin, how? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Kingdom of heaven belonging to that place. Great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, talk about right side of history. There's right side of history. But there is a great reward, but it's not in the here and now. It's something we await. At the end of Matthew, he'll talk about his second coming, his return in Matthew 25. And he'll, he will say, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. Perfect, righteous, needs met, cared for, no grief, no sorrow, no mourning, because you belong to the successful redeemer, provider, gracious, powerful, never gonna die, forever ruling, reigning, just, righteous, amazing, eternal, I could go on. Messiah King. Motivating, encouraging. We can do it another day. We can live for His glory and for His honor. Because ours is the kingdom. It's good news. It's good news. Because of what He successfully accomplishes. He is the King. The enthroned one, the already ascended one. 
And so we look to Him and we trust Him and we do join the Hallelujah Chorus. But one day, it'll sound better and it'll feel better to sing it. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for His perfect life of obedience. Thank you for His perfect sacrificial death on the cross that he suffered for us, that he died for us, that he absorbed your wrath that we deserve because he loved us. And thank you that he was bodily raised from the dead in victory and power. Thank you for the fact that he ascended and is even for us now. Help us as men and women and boys and girls to live like citizens of the kingdom. Help us to live like true Christians would who belong to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.